thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, and here with me today is Mava Hain, the founder and CEO of Bread Beauty Supply. Hi, Mava. How are you? Hi, Priya. I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. So, Mava, just to set the record straight, you know, we're doing this early in New York time, but we're how far are we ahead in Australia? 12 hours, is that right? It's 12, yeah. So I'm 12 hours into the future. <laughs> and how are things in Australia right now? I mean, I know I feel like you're on and off with lockdown and in the middle of this pandemic. How are things? Yeah, it's a very strange time. Um, but I mean, things are okay. I think in Australia, we lived a very odd moment um, for a period of time there where we had almost no COVID around the country. Um, and we kind of lost that head start. So a few states and cities are now in lockdown. Right now I'm in Perth, Western Australia, which has been one of, I think probably one of very few places in the world that hasn't really been as touched by COVID. Um, they closed the borders. They've only had, you know, a handful of days in lockdown over the past 18 months. Um, and right now is relatively normal. There's no masks, there's no lockdowns, there's no COVID. So uh, it's a strange place to be, but it's nice and it's sunny. <laughs> that definitely sounds nice. Um, Mava, you know, you came out, Bread Beauty Supply came out last year in the middle of the pandemic. You were one of the most exciting brands to launch last year in a really, really difficult time and launch in Sephora, no less. So tell us a little bit about kind of how the idea for Bread came about, because I think it's a pretty interesting one for our listeners. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it was a, obviously a, a really weird time to go to market, but um, the idea for bread had been brewing for years um, and it was something that I had been working on for years. And it's kind of a, it's it's a bit of a long story. I'll try and tell you the short version of it, which is that I, you know, I grew up in beauty. My mum had a hair salon when I was growing up. So I've always been around hair. Um, I then went on to have a career in beauty. I worked in marketing at L'Oreal. Um, and I managed to work across pretty much every category within the beauty space except for hair. Um, but I kind of just got to a point where I felt like many people like me feel, many women of color in the beauty space, um, that the brands that I was working on personally and even just the brands in the beauty industry in general weren't speaking to me as a woman of color. Um, they weren't speaking to my friends and my peers who looked like me. And um, that was just becoming increasingly frustrating. Uh, and it's kind of that um, that scenario of, you know, can you make change from within or do you have to kind of go outside of, you know, what's already established in order to uh, really see the change that you want to see in the space that you're operating in. And for me, it was beauty and it was like, nothing is happening. And uh, I just got to the point where I realized if I'm so frustrated by this, maybe I should go out and do something about it. Um, and so I ended up leaving and knowing that I wanted to launch a brand and create a brand that would speak directly to the needs of women of color and specifically black women. Um, but I actually had no idea what the brand was going to be. I just knew that that was the mission and I knew who I wanted to speak to and who I wanted to serve. Um, and there was work to do in pretty much every category. Uh, this was pre-Fenty as well. So it was a very different time. And I was actually exploring launching a makeup brand. 
Um, and I happened to go on a trip to the United States and I was in New York and I had a chemical hair relaxer, so a chemical hair straightening product um, in my suitcase. And I got on a flight from New York to Colorado. And when I arrived in Colorado, I opened up my suitcase and this relaxer had basically exploded um, all over my stuff. And I didn't have access to get another one at the time because we were in the middle of nowhere. And I just kind of made a decision in that moment that I was going to stop using this chemical hair straightening product, uh, which was something I had done for 20 plus years uh, since I was, you know, six or seven years old, something that a lot of women with my texture of hair do. And um, that was kind of the very beginnings of my journey to creating bread. Um, hair care was not on my radar at all. It was only because of that experience and that realization that I'm thinking about the products that I'm putting on my body and like my body creams and my face creams, and I'm starting to read ingredient lists and I'm still using this chemical hair straightening product on my scalp that has caused me welts and scabs and broken hair for years. And I should probably reevaluate that too, because my scalp is skin. Um, and I went looking for products and that's when I realized that the hair care category and especially for women who have textured hair and this kind of like multicultural hair care consumer was incredibly dated. Just I, I could see that there was no kind of innovation or newness happening in this space that was happening in other categories. I really did feel like I was back in like the 90s and I was like back in my mum's salon and everything was the same. And I was very overwhelmed. I had no idea what to buy. And at that point, when I first transitioned, I really just wanted to know how to wash my hair and for a brand to give me really simple products and a simple routine. And nobody was doing that. So, um, you know, I went away and, and started looking at the market data and seeing if what I wanted to exist was something that maybe other people wanted to exist too. And I could see anecdotally that other women were going through this coming of age where they would stop relaxing their hair and go back to their natural texture. And I thought, surely there's other people out there um, that are also coming up against this barrier. Um, and the data was showing that too. So 40% um, decline in relaxer sales over a five-year period, shampoo sales for curly hair were up, conditioner sales were going up, um, and it really felt like the moment was now to really create this brand that could actually speak to this customer and, and nobody was doing it. Maybe you've said so much uh, in so little time, actually. And I want to say, you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I want to say, you know, hair is such an emotional topic for women. And I mean, I would say for all women, but, you know, women of color, especially. And then like, just like skincare, I remember when Fenty Beauty came out onto the market, um, you know, people finally felt seen in a way that they hadn't before. But I would argue to some people, hair care is even more complicated. You know, I mean, there's so much, you know, political and um, identity related to that, that some people acknowledge and don't. And the beauty industry has historically not. So I'm wondering from your perspective, like when you were looking, I know you said to me before that, you know, bread was almost like the, the answer of, of Fenty Beauty for hair care in a way. It was like what women wanted, the aspiration, the cool girl factor, you know, being able to be seen. But what were you seeing on the market at the time? Because I would argue that so many of the brands that are around today for textured hair and curly hair are the same that have been around for 20 years since we were kids. 
Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think for me what I was seeing was two kind of distinct types of brand that were taking up the majority of the market, which was either a really large like multinational corporation creating a brand for this customer and for this hair type and using the resources and the insights that they had to do that. Or it was people making brands on their kitchen counter and either like staying kitchen counter brands or they were, you know, eventually making it to big box retail. And you had those kind of two pathways and then nothing really in the middle um, in the way that you see it in other categories. So a, like an indie brand that can really kind of stand up to the the Fenties and the Glossiers and really speak to this customer in a more contemporary way just didn't exist. It was like these two distinct <laughs> pathways that were cr- almost creating the same types of brands though. There was like a very distinct look and a very distinct feel and every brand, like new brand that was coming into the space almost felt like it was just following what already existed and then putting like a little bit of a different spin on it. Um, And nobody was really looking at it from a more kind of bird's eye point of view to say actually what's missing in this space is really like an indie brand that can sit in this middle where, one, you have the resources and the funding to be able to create something that is custom and can look different on a shelf and can feel different, um, but that still is close enough to the customer that you create something that does resonate in a way that brands weren't doing before, in a way that like a giant multinational corporation can't resonate with that customer. Why do you think the indie hair space has taken so long to evolve, whereas, say, skincare has been around? You know, we've been seeing the drunk elephants, the disruptors, the tachas for a while. And, you know, obviously Fenty, although Rihanna is not necessarily (laughs) indie in the same way that some of these other brands are, you know, it's the same idea. Why has hair care been such an afterthought? I think it's such a layered um, answer, especially for hair where typically, you know, you're going to your stylist for styling advice and you're going to that expert. And I think categories like makeup and like skincare almost had this transformation and a bit of a renaissance where it was like the education around what you're using and what you're doing and the brands that are coming into the space and not necessarily just dermatologist brands and not necessarily just brands made by makeup artists. Um, it's really about kind of putting that education into the consumer's hands and people now know why they need niacinamide or what hyaluronic acid does. Whereas in hair, it's been a little slower. Um, And I think that that's probably partly to do with the fact that hair, to your point, is so personal. Um, Everyone has like different hair needs, although you can probably achieve like what you need to achieve with similar products. Um, And people just don't know enough about hair and why they do the things we do. We all just kind of use shampoo and use conditioner without actually understanding the science of why. (laughs) And I think it's just been really slow to catch up. And in textured hair specifically, innovation has been really slow to catch up and resources have been really slow to catch up to actually care about this customer enough for there to be investment in the space. And for investors and for the industry to see that these people are spending a lot of money on hair care. Um, And you don't typically see those dollars because a lot of women with textured hair and a lot of black women are shopping at independent beauty supply stores. And so the 
amount of money that's being spent, you're not capturing that in the places where you usually capture data and people are like scanning products and um, a lot of that is hidden. It's like a hidden spend. It's a hidden market. And so there hasn't been as much, I guess, investor activity in the space until now. Um, And I think that we're in this phase now where it's only going to grow and you have brands like Patton and um, so many others that are coming onto the scene that I think is for us is actually amazing. Like it puts a spotlight on the category and it puts a spotlight on this customer. You launched last year in the middle of a pandemic. You also launched in Sephora where I know a lot of other indie brands weren't able to kind of secure distribution, weren't able to get product to stores or had been dropped by other retailers. How were you able to kind of execute Honestly, it was it was the most bizarre experience I think I'll ever have in my entire life. Um, and it was really bittersweet, I think, launching in the middle of a pandemic because on the one hand, the, that launch experience, very few brands will have. You know, there's only a handful of us that launched in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic um, that have that experience under our belt. Um, and I think it gave us as a company and as a brand a kind of backbone that we wouldn't have been able to develop this early on in our kind of existence. Um, But I think that it means that, you know, as a company we can kind of get through anything if we can get through that. Um, But Sephora for us was really something that I had worked on for years. Like when I first, that first moment when I went into store and I was looking for product and the idea for bread came to me, um, from very early on, like once I'd started digging into a bit of the data, I knew that I wanted the brand to exist in Sephora. By this point, Fenty had launched and I was like, okay, that Fenty customer doesn't have this option in hair and this brand needs to exist in a mainstream beauty place because she doesn't have that option in these types of channels. It is like independent beauty supplies and why can't she have the beautiful experience that you have when you walk into a Sephora and you can kind of get anything that you need and it's like a full beauty moment. Um, And so I ended up approaching Sephora really, really early. So we're talking like late 2017, 2018 maybe? Yeah, correct. And it was, you know, it was a goal to exist in Sephora, to launch with Sephora and to be that brand in Sephora for this customer. Um, And so I ended up managing to meet um, a VP at a conference and I said, this is what I'm building. I have a PowerPoint deck (laughs) and I have a concept and I know that this should exist in Sephora and what's your advice for getting a meeting with a buyer? Um, And she was kind enough to give me her card, said I'll get it in the hands of, you know, the right person, which she did. And within 48 hours, I was, you know, on a flight going to San Francisco meeting with this hair care buyer who said, oh, I have 15 minutes on a Tuesday. And I was like, great, I'll be there. Um, And, you know, ended up catching up for about an hour, just, you know, discussing the entire category, discussing bread. And, you know, Sephora was always very intent on serving this customer better. Like even back then they knew that they they had to figure out what this assortment should look like. Um, Hair care was really fast growing. It still is. And so ended up staying in touch for, you know, about a year year or so back and forth while I was literally building bread on the side while I was working a full-time job. Um, And then that buyer ended up putting me forward for Sephora Accelerate, which at the time 
uh, wasn't the model that they have now where you're pretty much guaranteed to launch in Sephora if you are part of Sephora Accelerate. Back then, um, I think it was probably the last year that they had that model where it was like, this is more about supporting female founders um, at whatever stage you're at, whether, you know, the ambition is to launch at Sephora or not. Um, and actually very few brands ended up launching at Sephora through that program in the four years or four or so years that it had been running. Um, but I knew that that was our goal. I was like, we're going through this program. We're going to get a purchase order at the end. Um, and so, yeah, really worked towards that. And and that's exactly what happened. Got to the end of that program and Sephora said, yeah, we want to launch the brand. Tell me a little bit about the investor piece, because I know just like Sephora and getting that purchase order, getting into Accelerate, it's almost like they're your first customers. These are the people that are really betting on you. Yeah, 100%. And I think that for me, the way that I saw kind of like the dominoes falling almost was like we need that buy-in from Sephora. I knew that I wanted from the get-go to raise capital and because I knew it wasn't going to be possible to launch in Sephora without that and to create the brand that we want to create and the business that we want to create, um, I knew we would need funding from the get-go. But that piece of getting the Sephora buy-in, I knew we needed that first. Um, and so once that happened, everything just kind of steamrolled from there. It was like a, <laughs> an ever-moving snowball um, that all happened really quickly. And to that point, everything had been kind of, you know, teetering along over a number of years, working on like bits and pieces slowly. And then everything just happened all at once. It was like, great, Sephora's in. We've got back-to-back meetings with VCs to kind of chat about the concept and the idea um, and really just like get the funding in the door for us to be able to do this. And I think everything from like Sephora buy-in to actually closing funding happened within the space of about eight weeks. Um, and so it was, it was a really quick turnaround around, but we had done all of that years of kind of like preparation of getting to that point, connecting dots, meeting with people saying, yeah, we're going to raise at some point. Um, and, you know, finally getting to that pinnacle where we, we raised and closed in um, February of last year. What about that buy-in set you up for success, you think, in the middle of the pandemic? Because obviously, you know, people are still dealing with supply chain issues, people still dealing with product issues, um, you know, satisfying the customer in this way really matters so much at the beginning. Yeah, totally. And I think that for us, it was really interesting because like the pandemic was like slightly starting to set in on the tail end of our fundraise and um, the timing was a little bit weird. But um, to my surprise, like everyone who said they were in was still in. Everyone still put, you know, the money in that they said they would and we closed out our round over subscribed. Um, and I think it's a, probably a testament to the types of investors that we managed to get on board who really believed in the very like long-term vision of the brand and who really believed in this customer and knew that we would be able to ride out the pandemic. And I think that that was a good bet because what we ended up finding was that, you know, people weren't going as much into store because they were closed and all of those things. But hair care, unlike other categories, ended up being a category that people were still using even when they're locked in their homes more than ever because they couldn't go to their stylist. And that kind of hypothesis that I had around, you know, this transition that skincare and makeup had where people were moving away from an expert and starting to do things themselves was completely exacerbated by the pandemic and by the shutdown. So it all actually ended up happening much faster than what we initially anticipated would happen. Um, so I think it all, yeah, all the timing all worked out in the end. Um, and there was, you know, obviously things that changed and, you know, we didn't necessarily launch in the way that we would have if, 
the pandemic hadn't happened. But um, yeah, I think there's a silver lining in anything. And, and for us, it was that, you know, we got to create something at a time where not that many other brands were able to execute. Tell us a little bit about kind of being in Sephora and not necessarily being in this quote unquote multicultural or textured hair aisle, which a lot of people have talked about in the past, you know, it's this back aisle of the store, it may be under lock and key at a Walmart or a Target. You know, the experience is very um, uh, much to be desired, or it has been. So for you to just come out and be like, hey, I'm a prestige hair brand, I'm in the middle of the store, just like everybody else. Um, what do you think that did for the brand from the get? I think that was a really important piece for us. For me, I I mean, this is kind of a lofty ambition, but we would love to get to the point where we don't have to say we're a hair care brand for textured and curly hair. We can just say we're a hair care brand because <laughs> the majority of the world's population does have curly and textured hair and we don't want to be in this space where the default is straight hair, right? And that's kind of the way that a lot of brands approach the market. It's like the default is straight hair and then oh, we'll do a range that's specifically for curly and textured hair. It's like, no, we're a brand for this customer and for this hair type. And it's just hair at the end of the day. We don't want to have to be kind of like segregated within a store and say that, oh, it's specifically for this hair type. We want to exist alongside every single other brand in a way that says this customer is just as important as every other customer. And it's not like a byline. It is the customer. So um, that was really important for me. Um, and I think the way that we do kind of present ourselves and talk about the brand and, and who we're for is important as well, more so in us being able to show it. So we show that, you know, we're all, for all hair types, all types of curly and textured hair rather than having to say it as much. I mean, we do still have to say it because of technicalities and because of search and all of those things, but we'd love to be in a place where it's like, oh, this is the default. And do you feel that that's easy to communicate or easy for people to understand? Not necessarily just yet, but that's where we want to go. Like that's where we want to move to. Right now it is still very young. I mean, the category and the kind of transformation that it's going through is still very young. Another important piece for us is that we don't say anti-frizz, which is a term that is used a lot in the space. And for me and for Brett as a brand, I found like a lot of the terminology that was being used almost kind of vilifies features that are normal for textured and curly hair and things like frizz, which aren't always bad. Like sometimes like a bit of frizz is, is great and it's not always about the hair being unhealthy and undesirable in quotation marks. Um, and so that proves to be a challenge because when you're living, you know, digitally and you're living in spaces where that terminology is still used, um, you still have to be able to speak to people and say, no, this hair care product will do what you want it to do. And we have to communicate that in a way without saying it's going to get rid of frizz. You know, we have to be very smart about the way we communicate and say, well, no, it's going to smooth the hair or get rid of flyaways or it's going to make the hair healthier without having to use terminology that is like anti and like anti-frizz and we're anti this. Actually, who do you think the customer is today? Because, you know, I have wavy hair. I use bread. You know, I know Priet Sephora, who has super curly hair, you know, uses bread. You use bread. You know, I mean, it's not just for Black women or, you know, a certain idea of who this category was originally kind of made for. 
Yeah. So for me, what's most important is that Black women know that they can buy this brand and that we've made these products for her. What we've found since we've launched, because hair care is such a young category and because people are still learning, everybody is coming to us. So we have our core customer, which is the Black woman, and we make sure that she feels represented and seen in everything that we do. But then we kind of have this halo customer who is literally any hair customer, whether they have wavy hair or maybe they have particularly dry hair and they don't know what to do with their hair and they don't feel like brands are telling them in a really easy to understand way or providing products that excite them. And so they're coming to us as well. Um, And I think that that's also a function of the types of of products we launched with. We started with Care. We started with Wash Day. And generally those products and what we find for us as well is that they work across all hair types and the way that you use them is what changes depending on your hair type versus like the product itself. And so it's not just about the formula and the product type. It's also about the routine and it's about the, um, what's the word? I'm having a, a mind blank. The uh, technique would you say that she's of a certain age? Do you think she's skews older, younger? I mean, obviously we kind of have an idea of who the Sephora customer is, but at the mm. same time, you know, you obviously have a lot of traction on your DTC site, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I'm excited to talk about, as well as, you know, the older customer who has not been served in this way and has kind of been treated with this like anti-no bad terminology mm-hmm. and language. Yeah, totally. And we, I mean, we see customers across the board in different age groups. Our core customer though is kind of like early to mid twenties. She's sort of young in her career. She's kind of like on that cusp between Gen Z, millennial. um, And she really appreciates us as a brand because you don't really find that kind of Gen Z style of brand in this space. Um, So she's our core and we're still very much like in the bi-coastal cities. She's in New York. She's in LA. She's working in creative industries. Um, That's our core. Uh, But we do see a lot of, to your point, older women who have been part of this category and have maybe not felt represented in the very kind of glossy over photoshopped ideal of what it means to have curly hair, um, who is coming to us and who loves us. We're also seeing a lot of parents coming to us to buy products for their kids. Um, And I love that because it kind of gives us this opportunity, I think, to see where bread can kind of transition and cater to an entire family. Like we're not just about this core customer. And I think that that gives us as a brand so much longevity and just so many different ideas about how we can serve this particular customer beyond just herself. Talk to me a little bit about the digital piece of it, because I know obviously Sephora is a huge part of your business, but you know, D2C was what really kind of changed the world last year in e-commerce. How did you kind of navigate that? And especially at a time when digital marketing is such in a, in such a weird place. It really is. And I think the way that we see it right now is that digital is kind of two things for us. One, it's about fostering community and really helping people to buy into the brand beyond just like the products that we're selling. Um, And it really does give us that direct connection to our community and, you know, what she's saying about us and how she's using us. And like any brand, that's super powerful for us. Um, But then the second is actually just creating this pathway to product that's really easy for people um, once they've discovered us at Sephora. So 
What we've found is that when you're in a Sephora, I think for any brand that's in Sephora, but especially if you're a brand like us that launched with Sephora, so we didn't exist in the world until we were live on Sephora and we were in Sephora stores, um, that becomes a really significant channel for people to discover your brand. Um, And so for us, our strategy has to take that into account. It is a significant portion of our business um, and we take that really seriously. And so we don't now look at our e-commerce as one channel and Sephora as another channel. It is all completely integrated. Everything we do is integrated. When we spend, it's integrated. The results that we see are integrated. People who find us in Sephora are speaking to us online on our own channels and vice versa. And so what we found when we're following people down their kind of path to purchase is that they end up, they'll make the purchasing decision in whatever channel makes the most sense for them at any given time. Um, So for example, maybe they found bread on Instagram and they've been kind of just like sitting in that consideration phase for a while. And then a VIB sale comes along and they're like, cool, I'm going to stock up at Sephora and a couple of things I've been meaning to buy. And then they'll buy bread and vice versa. Maybe they find us on Sephora and then they start following us online and then we launch a new product and they're like, oh yeah, great. And they've been sitting in consideration and then they're ready to convert. So for us and for all of those reasons, our the way we came into the world and the way we see spend now and how people are shopping, um, we have to look at everything as one thing. It's one whole. Like we don't see our distribution in silos. Like if we spend more on our own digital and our own e-commerce, we see a lift at Sephora. If we spend more on driving people to Sephora, we see a lift in our e-commerce. And so everything is just completely integrated and we don't see them as separate channels anymore. So we never do uh, digital campaigns where we're like, cool, we're just focused on our e-commerce here. Like we might do a little bit of that, but we're always doing things that have like a really 360 approach where it's all of the channels together and no one thing is going to drive one distribution channel. That's so interesting because I feel like not a lot of people look at it that way. I think that most people really were like, oh shit, stores were closed last year. How do we do this? We really need to focus on our e-commerce. And maybe that was brands that really had no digital strategy before. So why do you think that like, you know, this is the right way to do this, especially when, you know, like Facebook and Google ads are not necessarily paying off the way they once did, you know, 10 years ago? Yeah, 100%. And I think it comes down to really the power of like your retailer and our retailer is Sephora and they are still this huge ginormous beauty authority. And it doesn't really make sense for us to spend 10x trying to convert someone who's not already a beauty junkie. Like you've got the Sephora audience, they're already ready to buy beauty. And so (laughs) really focusing on that audience as well as our kind of own e-commerce audience makes the most sense. Um, And I think that this was something that I found when I was working in the industry as well, where we had brands that were those traditional brands that were in a lot of retail distribution. And then we're launching e-commerce sites because it wasn't a big thing back then and you have to launch your digital and then you're like, okay, how do we play in both? How do we ensure that we're growing our e-commerce, but then we're also paying attention to our retail? And it was always this push and pull and it was always a problem and like, how do we get over this? And so we kind of just reframed the way that we think about it and realized that 
focusing on one thing isn't best for the overall business. Like we're in charge of this business. Like the business does well in any channel, we're doing well. And so it doesn't make sense to think about them as distinct places. The customer is kind of the same. So, um, and it's kind of the way that I actually think about it now is, you know how in a makeup bag you'll have a Maybelline mascara and then like a, a Chanel foundation and people aren't just buying one or the other. They're not just buying drugstore. They're not just buying high-end. Most people have a combination of the two. It's kind of the way that I see people buying too within the distribution channels. They're not just going to buy on our e-commerce. They're also probably buying things on Sephora. So it's like the same customer shopping across all of those places um, and we get better bang for our buck when we think about it like that. What about other kind of -of out-of-the-box marketing activations? Because I know that you guys recently did kind of like a zine newspaper um, idea for customers, which is kind of like, you know, delightful in a way and retro in a way that, you know, allows you to stop and think versus just scrolling on your Instagram feed. And it sounds like you're really thinking about doing more of those. Yeah, definitely. And I think for us, that's really an extension of our brand because hair care as a category has typically been very professional and it's about salons and it's about like technology and all of these things. And we are very intent on creating a brand that feels fun. Um, And so the paper that we developed for one of our launches and have continued developing since was really about giving kind of a physical extension to that playfulness of our brand um, and really creating almost a piece of media that people just really seem to love and so many parts of our brand, to your point, like this kind of nostalgia is built around nostalgia. So this is kind of like a physical newspaper. It's an interesting format for people to play with. And not many Gen Z or even millennials actually (laughs) pick up a newspaper anymore. And so we've kind of given that medium, um, I guess, a little bit of like modern context. And it's like this opportunity to hold on to something tangible other than like a note card that you would typically get in an e-commerce send out or in a press send out. Um, And we're becoming a little more interactive with it as well. So in the last uh, paper that we sent out, we had a crossword and all of the answers to the crosswords were things that you could learn about the product. So it's a way to really kind of instill that product education and tell people about the product um, in a way that feels far more interactive, in a way that you'll actually retain because there's just so much going on. Um, and we've found that people love just having something you can hold and something you can focus on that is not a screen. Um, and so the paper has been has been really great for that and, and a, a really great way for us to communicate our brand that is quite standout and, and that people love sharing as well. How are you thinking about product innovation? Because I know you definitely started with care, but mm-hmm. you know, your hair oil category seems to be booming and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of an unusual, not standard hair care product, although trending across the industry now, you know, people didn't even know they needed an oil before. Mm-hmm. So what are you thinking um, is on the horizon for you? Yeah, it's been very, um, actually a little surprising for us as well. We had an idea about like what our hero product would be. And then the audience was like, no, it's this. So they told us what the hero product was going to be rather than the other way around because hair oil is our number one seller. Um, it's our number one kind of category. Um, and now the way that we're thinking about innovation is kind of, um, I mean, we, we, we launched with care and we launched with wash day and that kind of first point of the routine. 
And in the past year, we've listened to what people want and what they're doing with their hair and still continuing to champion routine because that's worked really, really well. And people have really resonated with that. Our kit um, has been one of our best sellers so far. So getting that wash kit all in one box and like, this is your routine and like, go away and do it. People have really, really um, bought into that. Um, But I think that what's important in textured hair and curly hair, especially now that we've kind of been in it for a year and we're seeing what's happening now, is that the innovation and scientific innovation can be really lacking compared to other categories, even compared to like hair care overall. Um, And generally what we're seeing is innovations are taking a lens that is very Caucasian centric. So it's like Caucasian hair centric. And as a newer brand to market for us, where we're trying to deliberately offer something that is very different in this space, it almost feels like a duty to ensure that our kind of pipeline speaks to that innovation in a way that really centers textured hair. So an example of that is Olaplex, right? Olaplex is amazing. They've built such an incredible brand. But if you think about the origins of Olaplex, I think most of us immediately think it's bleaching. It's a bleaching treatment. It's going to fix bleached hair. Even though it works on a range of issues, that's kind of like what they went to market with and that's how they penetrated the market. That's kind of how everybody thinks about it. But what bleach does to the hair is kind of the same as what Relaxer does. But that was never the core messaging around this innovation. And so for me, that's always kind of bothered me a little bit. And people talk about it now and people use it on relaxed hair and all of those things, but it's not typically the way that it's spoken about as an innovation. Um, And as we're kind of building out our pipeline, we're discovering that there are all of these really cool innovations that would work for the specific needs of textured and curly hair, but nobody's talking about them in that way or nobody's bringing them to this category specifically. Um, And so I'm really excited about that and having kind of like longer term product pipeline um, that will bring some of that innovation to this space in a way that speaks to the needs of women of color um, in a very deliberate way. And hair growth is one of those things that we're thinking about now. Do you think that that kind of that chemical conversation, we're seeing it a lot in skincare right now, creates a little bit of distrust around this for this customer. You know, you, you know, people are, we're kind of going back and forth with that within skincare, right? You know, like we went all the way over to clean. Now we're like, no chemicals, not bad. You know, doctor (laughs) brands aren't brand, but you know, I'm just wondering for this customer, you know, when they associate, um, chemicals with relaxers, do you think it's going to be harder to kind of communicate to them or, or get them to say, you know, oh, okay, we trust Brad. This isn't going to be a problem. Yeah, I think not necessarily. Um, I don't, I mean, hair care is still that type of category where it's like you can have a bad makeup day, but your hair care products, they have to work every single time. And so I think that to your point, there has been this kind of push and pull between, you know, quote unquote natural and clean and then, you know, more kind of scientific innovation um, that has been a little difficult to navigate in hair because you want things to work really well. And often that comes with synthetic ingredients. Um, But I think that there's a way to speak to that in a way that doesn't put people off and in a way that is perfectly safe and in a way that works really well. 
um, it all just comes down to education and the education is already so light that there's a real opportunity to make sure that what is happening in skin and what is happening in makeup doesn't happen to hair. Um, I think that there's a way to navigate that in a way where people are really receptive. You know, we did this piece on TikTok. It was a piece of content talking about the way you look after your hair and describing the ends of your hair as fabric because it's technically dead. It's not a thing that is alive. The way that brands talk about hair is like, oh, it's alive and bring it back to life when it's dead. It's literally like fabric hanging out of your head. And that resonated so well because people don't really know about hair and how it grows out of your head and what you should be doing to it and why it does the things it does. So I think that more so than any other category, there's an opportunity to talk about, um, you know, chemicals (laughs) in a way that still resonates with the customer so that they're not afraid. You know, Brett is still only about a year and a half old or almost a year and a half, Mava. I'm wondering what you can tell us about the brand's growth and kind of where it's at and whether in terms of sales or customers, you know, I know that kind of information is a little bit off the radar for the brand, but it's something that I think really are, are people are excited about. Yeah. Yeah. So we typically don't talk in like numbers for a couple of reasons, but What I can say is that in the last six months, so um, the last six months versus our first six months, we've more than tripled the brand, um, which is really exciting. And I think that there's so much growth opportunity for us, um, not just in our key markets, but in other markets as well. Um, And we're kind of in this position now where we have to almost put the brakes on expanding too much because (laughs) we have to service the needs of our core markets and core customers first um, and really service the demand that's there. Uh, Otherwise, we're stretching ourselves too thin. There's so many things that we'd love to say yes to and we're having to say no to a lot and to a lot of new partnerships and a lot of new distribution um, so that we can service that demand um, more thoroughly and and make sure that we're speaking to this um, core customer first. So on that note, Mava, last question for you. When you think about distribution, it seems like you've been very methodical and meticulous about where you want to be, how you want to be there. And I'm just wondering, you know, are you going bigger in Sephora? Are you thinking about other retailers? Or is it really just kind of about staying focused for right now? Yeah, we're definitely very focused. Um, I think that Sephora kind of remains the perfect retail partner for us. Um, they're growing this category, which is great for us as well. It brings in more of this customer. And I think that, you know, the origins of the brand have been with Sephora from the very start. Um, but you never know what's on the horizon. Um, I think that our priority is really like existing where our customer wants us to exist. Um, And so we're constantly, you know, refining what that looks like in the next, you know, three to five years and and where we need to go and and where we exist internationally as well, which is really exciting because this issue and this gap exists not just in the US, but in pretty much every Western market. So, (laughs) um, yeah, there's a a lot of opportunity. and, And to your point, we are being very methodical about where we exist um, because, yeah, the the gap is there and um, we have this opportunity now to kind of be a hero brand in a lot of these retail spaces where an option hasn't typically existed. And help build out the category there, right? 100%. Yeah, yeah, which is really exciting for us. Thank you so much, Mava. It was so wonderful having you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.